find a capital solution to be able to get get over that hump right a lot of people are saying survive to 25 and i don't know if that's exactly the right date but i do think if you're able to hold on you know the the, the longer you're able to hold on the better you're listening to ice cream with investors a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? So I actually just ran up to the, the cafe on the 64th floor. This is all I could get. This is all I could get from them. I was hoping maybe I could get some cool bar or something, but this is uh, chocolate, uh, chocolate mochi. But my favorite would be cookies and cream, I think, like a cookies and cream froyo. Yum, yum. You, um, so I'm 150 episodes deep right now. I have never eaten ice cream on the show, and you are only my second guest to have eaten ice cream on the show. And you didn't tell me that before uh, we hit record here. So that's a nice little surprise you got going there. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm really surprised. I thought, I thought it would be obligatory, but I guess people are not, uh, you know, they're not on top of their game. Well, Rob, that is uh, what I envision with this show is like one day somebody's going to see me at your conference or another conference and they'll be like, oh my gosh, you're Matt Four from Ice Cream with Investors. Can I buy you a free cup of ice cream? And that's how I'm going to get ice cream for free for the rest of my life. That's the plan. It's pretty smart. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? So a little bit more about myself. My business partner and I, we started Lone Star Capital, which is the firm that we run today. A little over five years ago, we're here based in New York City, but we focus on Texas workforce housing. We own about 3,000 units across Texas, but primarily in Dallas and Houston. Those are our target markets, and we're also looking to branch into San Antonio. So we're very focused as far as our asset class as well as our geography. And one of the ways that that helps us be successful is a couple years ago, we vertically integrated, which means that we brought property management in-house. So now with property management and construction management, more so under our purview, we're able to just be a bit more hands-on, have more transparency, and create better economies of scale. So that's really served us well, both you know focusing on the the operations as well as on the acquisition side. And uh, to f- to fuel the business, we've partnered with a lot of high net worth investors as well as family offices and private equity firms uh, for on the on the equity side. Got it. Got it. Well, take us back. Where did your real estate journey begin? So it began really earlier than I can remember, actually, because my parents used to run a residential brokerage firm in California. So I grew up in a real estate family. My parents ran the business from home, so I was exposed to all their deal making and whatnot. But it was all on the single family side. So they would do they would buy and sell homes for their clients. They would do some construction, some fix and flip. And it wasn't until 2016 that kind of myself and and the family we started getting into multifamily. And so multifamily is just a a much better business model, more scalable, really better for building more of like an institutionally operated cash flow business. And so at the time, my dream was to kind of my dad and I to be business partners because we're extremely close. But unfortunately, he was at the time very busy with his main business still, and that wasn't really feasible and so I was fortunate enough to meet my business partner, Kent Petrakovsky, and we were a perfect match for each other. And we started Lone Star Capital, which is now what we do today and have had the uh, you know, great partnership ever since. 
You mentioned uh, fix and flipping. Were they doing any uh, fix and flips in their time? Were they buying and holding any real estates or were they just primarily focused on selling like high, 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 uh, high ticket priced homes? Yeah, the primary focus was luxury home sales, but then also some some big, you know, some small, but then bigger fix and flips as well. Gotcha. Gotcha. So did you ever go when you were younger on those properties and do any of the work yourself or, or go along with your dad to the job sites? Yeah, I mean, we, we joked that I was on construction sites and diapers, but I don't I don't remember any of that stuff. And yeah. I do remember banging uh, hammers and nails, but I, I don't think I was actually really adding any value. Yeah, yeah. Well, my dad was a business owner growing up, um, some in construction, and then he had a string of businesses um, in the 90s as well. And some of my fondest memories as a kid actually with him are not playing baseball in the backyard. It's going on those business trips and seeing the sites and, and touring his brick and mortar sites and things like that. Um, how do you think that influenced you growing up? Do you think that made you more real estate focused, made you more entrepreneurial or talk us through that? I think in the end it, it did, right? Just look at look at where we are. But growing up, it was kind of a two-sided situation because on the one hand, being exposed to real estate early on and seeing my parents be extremely hardworking and entrepreneurial, it exposed me to what it was, what it meant to be a business owner and an entrepreneur. Meanwhile, growing up in Silicon Valley, there was a lot of tech influence, right? And a lot of people were making a lot of money and still continue to make a lot of money in tech. So my parents said, hey, this real estate stuff's a lot of hard work. You should focus on tech. You should start a, start a, do, a, do a startup or join a VC firm or something like that. So that kind of was in my head. And so that's why I eventually went to school for computer science at Carnegie Mellon, thinking that I would join a startup or get into consulting or something like that. Uh, but then, of, of course, it all comes back full circle, and I got the real estate bug in college, and that's when I started Lone Star, and eventually ended up dropping out and g- moving to New York and doing the, you know, the real estate business full time. Yeah. Um, did they just say, "Hey, why don't you start Facebook 2.0? Like you got that? Why don't you just <laughs> easy money there? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe in another life. But for me, the thing that resonates about real estate so much is the the get rich slowly but get rich for sure game the the probabilities of the tech world for me just don't resonate and i'm i'm you know in some ways risk averse and as an entrepreneur you know you're naturally a more uh risk tolerant person but when it comes to investing and things and things like that i just really prefer not to say that real estate is a sure thing but i do prefer the the slower and riskier option or less risky option Yeah. I heard someone say the other day that there are more millionaires in real estate, dumb millionaires in real estate than any other business out there. Not because it's easy, but it is a simple business model. You have income coming in, you got expenses coming out. Can you cover your debt ratio? Great. What's left? That's your profit. Simple, but hard. Yeah. Yeah. So you started, I'm going to take, take a step back. You started your business in, in college. Yes, that's right. What did your parents think when you said, hey, I'm, I'm, I know I'm doing the computer science degree. I'm probably in one of arguably the best uh, schools in the nation for that, but I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to go to real estate. Yeah, it, I think it wasn't a rash decision, and it was a slow buildup to it. There was a lot of preliminary proof that there was something building here. Right? It wasn't just kind of this random idea, and now we're going to go on this wild goose chase and see if it works out. 
it was certainly an unproven thing. So there was a risk there for sure. But it was there was a lot of progress that was made kind of prior to making the decision. And it was a very logical decision made in conjunction with peers and advisors and, of course, my family. I, I would say all in all, they were supportive as much as parents could be supportive in that situation. You know, for for parents, it's always a big deal and a proud moment for their kid to graduate college, right? So there's that element. But I think they understood that the opportunity was there in front of me. And also the downside protection was there as well, because if I failed and decided to go back to school, I'd be able to go back and pick up right where I left off. So if you take the emotion out of it, if you take the ego out of it, it really made a ton of sense. And when I say ego, there there is somewhat of an ego hit, if you will, because you're kind of opening yourself up to a lot of criticism from your peers, right? A lot of my classmates thinking, oh, wow, leaving school, was he not smart enough? Or does he know what he's doing? Or, you know, he, he's not on the right path, that kind of thing. So just sticking to it and understanding, okay, this is the right decision. And I'm just putting one foot in front of the other. And the downside protection is there. That made the decision pretty easy. How, how did you deal with the ego hit, I guess you could say around like your peer group saying, Hey, why is he dropping out? Why is he doing this? Talk like, what did, how did you deal with that? I've always been someone comfortable with going against the grain and doing something that's non-consensus. So I think that's somewhat built inside of me, which is a, a very good quality kind of willing to, I don't want to say, you know, walk to the beat of my own drum type of thing. I'm not that, uh, interesting or whatever, but it's definitely inside of me to, I would say it kind of traces back to one of my core strengths, which is my ability to delay gratification and think long-term. I've always been fascinated by the marshmallow test back at Stanford, Mm -hmm. right? Where they tested super young kids as far as their ability to delay gratification. And if you wait 10 minutes, you'll get not one marshmallow, but two, right? And that was a better marker of future success than their high school GPA or the SAT score. Just the simple fact of being able to delay gratification. So I think that is the thing, right? People can, quote unquote, laugh now, but I'll be laughing later. That's kind of the idea. Did, do you remember anything growing up around the marshmallow test, like any specific examples where, you know, maybe you were offered a piece of candy, but you said, hey, I'm not going to eat that because I'm going to get more later? I'm, let, me, let me contextualize this question. We have a five and a seven-year-old, and that is like the one thing I care about teaching them more than anything is that you can do an easy choice today but have a hard life later, or you can do a hard choice today and have an easy life later. And I'm trying to figure out, like, was there a moment in your life, in your childhood, where you knew you had that? That's a great, that's a great question, especially when you take it back all the way to those early ages. It's, it's, first of all, it's hard for me to remember those times, but second of all, it's harder to imprint those lessons at that age as well. I think certainly my dad wasn't, I mean, he's a fantastic father. I mean, I'm not just saying that he really put in the effort, but I think he himself didn't necessarily have a set strategy that, Oh, I have all these tips and tricks and everything. I think his, his motto was the more time I spend with my kids, the better the outcome. And so one thing I really appreciate is, which has turned into a pet peeve for me is my dad never spoke to my sister or I as kids, even though obviously we're little, he wouldn't speak in a little baby voice or anything, right? He would address us as, 
uh, adults and speak to us in an, uh, with an adult conversation. And I actually noticed that same thing when I was hanging out with your partner, Chris Larson, and yep. his family when they came to visit New York. And I got to hang out with his wife and his boys. And he's speaking to his boys, you know, as adults and asking them, hey, do you remember what we talked about with this tax strategy? When we went and toured this property, do you remember what we saw this? Uh, you know, I, I really like that. And I think that is, you're selling your kids short if you feel the need to call to them or speak to them in, in a baby voice or, or, or dumb down your speech. So I think that is one reason why I learned to speak well is because my dad was always around and speaking to us as adults. So that's getting away from your question about delayed gratification. But I think his lessons and always talking to us and showing us, showing, giving us examples and stories. If I, if I, if I had to pick one thing, I would say exercise. Yes. You know, he's always been big on exercise and I took to working out at a very young age. And that's a really concrete, obvious thing. And the beautiful thing about exercise is it can't be bought and it can't be faked. So if you see someone with, that's in perfect shape and they're, 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 they're a good athlete, you can't buy that, you can't fake it. And so that's delayed gratification. You can't just get it tomorrow. Dude, I have so much to say on that. Uh, the first thing is, that's why I love Ironman. So Chris, you mentioned him, he's an endurance cyclist. I'm an endurance cyclist and runner. And the thing I always talk about is like, if you look at LeBron James, he's six foot eight, 240 pounds of rock solid muscle and can jump out of a gym. Now, no doubt he's taken care of his body. He's done the right decisions, all those sorts of things. But he was born an athlete. Like he was naturally predisposed. Whereas when I show up to a race to uh, run a marathon or to do a hundred mile ride, like your body is not naturally built for that. So whoever shows up to that line has put in the work to at least show up. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for people like that. The second thing I'll say is it's funny that you mentioned that about talking like they're adults. We're big proponents of that in our family as well. Um, and I had a moment yesterday, actually last night, where I made a deal where if um, our son, if he ate two pieces of pizza, I would give him a treat. Well, behind my back, he went and got two treats. And I said, this is something I care about. You're not in trouble. This is something I deeply care about. When you make a deal with someone, you don't take advantage of that deal. You fulfill your side of the deal. So hopefully that'll work out. I don't know. Maybe this is the internet and uh, I'm a terrible father and we'll figure that out as well. But 20 years from now, I hope that he hears me even if he doesn't understand in the moment. Yeah, I agree. It's, I'm not a parent, nor so, so far from an, an expert in that realm, but I think it is, it's kind of like how you do small things is how you do all things. Right. Right. You have right. to be, have to be firm. Yeah. Well, Rob, we didn't bring you on today to talk about parenting advice. Um, I thought that was very interesting and the side of you I haven't heard about yet. So I appreciate the dialogue there. But one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is because you are the man who literally wrote the book on underwriting multifamily acquisitions. And when I'm talking to investors or friends or colleagues about real estate, they understand like, oh, this house is worth what the house next to it is worth. However, that doesn't work in commercial real estate. Um, it's a little bit different in how we underwrite, analyze, and do all those sorts of things. So I wanted to start the conversation with when you're looking at a multifamily acquisition in Houston or Dallas where you predominantly operate, what are some of the things and the factors that you're looking at in underwriting that acquisition? And then maybe we can dig into a little bit more specific questions that I have. So the beauty of focus on the acquisition side is it allows you to 
cut through some of the noise and really understand better what you're looking at. Because if I were to look at a deal or an asset class that I'm not familiar with, it would be a big learning curve and I'd have to kind of spend more time looking at the underlying assumptions and metrics and everything. But for us, because we're looking at kind of the similar deals over and over again, we, we can really get attuned to what are those key metrics that we can that we need to be focusing on. And so for us, before we even really do a deep dive on a deal, we need to make sure that it checks those initial boxes. And so for us, we're looking for, of course, quality assets. They don't have to be in A-plus locations, but they shouldn't be in high crime, really low income areas. So we're looking for that sweet spot, which is what we call workforce housing. So for us, it kind of depends a little bit on the market, but it's anywhere from forty-five dollars to $85,000 incomes is, I would say, the workforce housing sweet spot. And then we're looking for property that's typically 20 to 40 years old and has certain construction characteristics that makes it make us feel comfortable about the deferred maintenance risk, right? That's another factor that we need to be aware of. So once we check some of those preliminary boxes, then that gives us the comfort to say, okay, let's spend time on this deal and let's invest an hour or two into really digging into the numbers and making sure that uh, we can identify a solid business plan. Because to kind of jump through the basics, obviously the basics are you need to understand the income and the expenses and then the debt and all that good stuff, which you know, frankly, I've, like you said, I wrote the book on and talked a lot about that kind of stuff. So I'm sure some people are familiar with that, but to kind of jump to the, the real crux of today and how to identify good opportunities today, it's all about finding the little small tweaks in the numbers that get, put you over the edge. Because what, what frustrates me, and I'm sure it frustrates you as well, is everyone claiming to be a conservative underwriter. <laughs> Because the reality is that's just not feasible. It's fine if you want to be a theoretic, theoretical underwriter, which means that you look at deals, but you never invest because you just conservatively underwrite them all to look bad. The market and the, the world is so competitive that you, can't have the, you don't have the luxury to just be really conservative on all your assumptions and then arrive at a conclusion that the deal is good. Right? It's a, it's a, it's a duality, a dichotomy. So... The right answer is finding ways to be aggressive in an appropriate manner with risk under control and then also finding the smart ways to push income, which, like I said, push you over the edge and make the returns look attractive. So one big one that comes to mind for me right now and and it's growing in popularity is the installation of bulk fiber internet at the property and then selling that bulk fiber uh, to the tenants individually and then making a spread. So the property gets essentially the fiber at a cheaper rate and then sells it at, to a premium to the tenants and the property is able to make a spread. And that is a great way to pick up some extra income that the property may not currently have, which means it's not reflected in today's price. And that's what it's all about. If you can buy the property today and then find ways to add value later, which then can bring the returns up. Because if you just buy a deal and don't do anything with it, as you know, the returns are going to be mediocre, and rightfully so, right? You're not really putting in any effort. So the, the, those are really some of our biggest focuses today. One of the things I love that you just said was everybody claims to be a conservative underwriter. Like I've never been on a deal presentation webinar where they're like, boy, we are going out on a limb here. I don't know how we'll make this deal work. It's so risky. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody says, oh, we've used our conservative underwriting, yada, yada. Well, if you're conservative underwriting, you can underwrite everything to not be a deal because 
there's too much risk associated with it. But what I heard is like you're picking areas where you want to take calculated risk and 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 execute against a single objective to kind of help boost your NOI. Um, is that is that a good summary there? I just want to make sure I capture that correctly because that's that's golden. Yep, that's the perfect summary. Um, what talk to us about sensitivity analysis then? Because in today's market, we're seeing folks acquire. At, well, last year we saw a lot of people acquire assets at like a three and a half cap, and then say, "Oh, we've done our sensitivity analysis, and we might exit at a four cap, for instance." Well, depending on the asset class, we are way beyond four caps now. So I guess start us off with A, how would you define a cap rate if in case that's a new term for somebody? And then B, how, how are you determining what your exit cap rates are going to look like five to seven years from now? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So a cap rate is one of the most fundamental valuation metrics for commercial real estate. And it is simply the income of the property divided by its value. So it gives an investor an understanding of what the unlevered cash flow potential is of the property. Because, and just as an example, if you're buying a $10 million property, and let's say you just pay all cash, so you put $10 million of cash into the deal, and if it's a 5% cap rate, that means that the property has 500000 in net operating income. And if you don't have any debt on the deal, then you don't have any interest payments to make. So that $500,000 in income just comes straight to you. So that's a simple 5% return on investment every single year through the NOI divided by the property's value. So that is the cap rate equation. But for the more interesting side of the equation for savvy investors like you and me is actually when you rearrange some of the variables. Instead of value being in the denominator, you actually move it over and you move it to the other side of the equal sign and you actually take NOI divided by cap rate to derive value. And so that's how... In commercial real estate, we find value or find out what the value of a property is. Unlike in single family, like you mentioned in, earlier in the show, where people really are looking at single family values on a comp-based approach. They look at the property next door, down the street, and they say, well, my house is worth X because it's similar but different to the house that's worth Y and so on. In commercial real estate, it's more numbers driven and income driven because at the end of the day we don't buy commercial real estate to live in it we buy it to make money so with this cap rate equation where if we can find out what the income of the property is and we know what the market cap rate is what the property's cap rate value should be then we can find out what its actual dollar value is and so that brings us to what you mentioned which is the exit caps when we perform our analyses it's important to figure out what the, what the future rents are going to be and the future expenses. We can figure out what cash flows are year over year over the next three, five years or so on. But what's really the one of the most important factors of the analysis is actually what can you sell the property for later? That's going to be a major driver of your returns. And we do that through estimating what we think the cap rate is going to be upon exit. Like you said, the exit cap rate. And our methodology for that is I would say right now a little bit in flux, you know, honestly, just because of how funky the market is. But historically speaking, what we do is we look at where the market cap rate is today, and then we expand that by another half a percent. So if we think just using 5% as the example, again, if we think deals today or of that caliber are trading at a 5% cap rate, we'll just assume that the market deteriorates a little bit in five years. 
and that will sell the property for a five and a half percent cap rate. Gotcha. You said it was in flux today. I'm I'm interested in how you're kind of projecting that five years. Are you using like the forward yield curve? Like what metrics are you looking at to uh, kind of assume that deterioration? Hey, fellow investors, before we dive into our next segment of the show, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about a fantastic opportunity for you to invest with me. As you know, here at Ice Cream with Investors, I'm passionate about real estate investing and helping you navigate the exciting world of wealth creation through real estate. And that's why for the first time, I'm thrilled to tell you about an opportunity for you to invest alongside of me. Over the past three years, I've been investing in multifamily, mobile home parks, car washes. I've even become the bank and lent out money to fellow real estate investors on a short-term basis. And now you can come join me. If you'd like to jump on a call and learn more about this opportunity, head to icecreamwithinvestors.com slash invest and find a time for us to connect. And now back to the show. So today's really interesting environment. And hopefully I can explain this simply, but so for us, just given where interest rates are to buy a deal and for the numbers to make sense today, you have to buy at a very high cap rate, historically speaking, a, a lot of the deals that we're reviewing right now on a weekly basis it, are, are ones where we're buying for a five cap, buying for 5.5, buying close to a 6% cap rate going in. That's asking a lot from the market and from sellers, because likely that means the seller's taking a loss on their investment. So what that means is there's not really much to buy right now, because if you're evaluating deals on that basis, there's really not that many sellers out there that are willing to sell for that high of a cap. So is that actually the market cap? I don't know. Not really, right? If deals aren't getting done at that cap rate, then arguably that's not the market cap rate. So for us, the way we look at it is, okay, well, we'd like to buy this deal at a five and a half cap, and I'm going to be a little rough here, but if we'd like to buy the deal at a five and a half cap, okay, fine, but the market cap is actually more like five. So we're probably not going to be the winning bid because someone's willing to pay more than us. So then how do we evaluate the exit cap? Well, I don't think personally it makes sense to project a 6% exit cap on that deal because that's a really wide exit cap, and the market's probably at a five today anyway. So in today's environment, we're more so looking at buying for a five and five and a half cap, let's say, and exiting at a five and a half cap, which is a flat, no expansion from going in to exit. A lot of people would point that out as being aggressive. And historically speaking, I would say that's true. But today, because I think we're at a near term high for cap rates, it actually makes sense to make somewhat of a bet that cap rates are going to revert to some sort of mean, which is lower, a bit lower than where you might be buying for today. So that does mean that on a cap rate basis, today is a decent time to buy. The challenge is on the debt side. Debt is kind of flipping that whole thing upside down. And even if you can buy for what is a relatively attractive cap rate, the still the, the numbers still don't really make sense. Yeah. Um, I was talking to an investor earlier today, and one of the things that I said was, I do believe that we are at or near the peak for cap rates and at or near the peak for interest rates. The reason being, there's a lot of different reasons. One, we have $7 trillion of CBS loans that are coming up to, for renewal in the next uh, 18 months, let's call it. Two, we're going into an election cycle. Three, everybody has the uh, hangover from 2008 in their memory, and they understand that they don't want things to fall. 
And he was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Well, I'll wait till interest rates come down and then I'll buy. And I'm like, you're not hearing what I'm saying then because if we're at historically the what we think might be the near-term high on interest rates and cap rates, then now is a good time to buy and you sell when it looks like it's a good time or when debt terms are more favorable. Is that – are you – are you saying the same thing? Are we generally kind of aligned there, it sounds like? I'd say we are generally aligned. Basically, the, the things I'm picking up from you, which I agree with, are it's easier to catch a falling knife than it is to time the bottom or try right. to get the upswing. Because if the investor you were speaking with and the entire world are all waiting around for rates to come down, it's all this money is going to plunge back into the market all at once, and that's going to bid prices up. So the window of opportunity when the all-clear sign comes is going to be very tight, and that's why buying the falling knife when things are still kind of sideways and deteriorating is is more manageable to do. With that being said, we don't know the future, obviously, right. and we're not going to base our business model and strategy on predicting the future. So that's why we are always looking to buy in all parts of the market because you just really don't know. And as long as we're buying a deal that fundamentally makes sense today, then it'll make sense five years from now. So that's the, that's the, that continues to be the focus. Yeah. An analogy I would say is like, put up your sales before it starts getting really windy and essentially, you know, tell people that you're interested in buying, put in offers, underwrite deals, make sure that you are known as a buyer in this type of environment. That way, if the proverbial winds start blowing or the knife starts falling, then you're, you're ready to catch it. Um, so when you're looking at NOI, you look at income and then expenses. Like those are kind of the two factors that you can play with, essentially. We talked a little bit about the income and, and some of the fiber and ways to add additional income and things like that. I want to talk about the expense side. Um, and specifically, I want to talk through like insurance so expenses are, are pretty easy to look historically at what they've done, throw a little bit of a growth rate on it, and kind of maneuver your way from there. Insurance seems to be a conversation right now that is coming up more and more. So major insurers are, are walking away from California. Um, a lot of insurers are walking around away from coastal cities in Florida. Um, operating in Texas, I wonder if you could just give us a little bit of insight to one, what are you seeing in the insurance market? And then two, how are you projecting insurance costs moving forward in this type of environment where we're seeing major insurance carriers just walk away from states? Yeah. So there's a little bit of cyclicality in the insurance business. So, so there's periods of time where, insurance goes up very rapidly and then settles down. And so right now, unfortunately, we're in a period of, of rapidly rising insurance costs for various reasons. There's been more losses recently. So more loss events have recently occurred. And then there's been some consolidations and, and people exiting the business, like you're saying, making it less competitive. So that's been that's been a challenge for us in Texas with r rates rising up uh, quite a bit. We have a master policy across our portfolio, which helps a little bit, but it uh, is definitely not a cure by any means. So for us, there's unfortunately for us, and I don't think for anybody else, there is no magic silver bullet. We are just we, we just have to underwrite to the most recent up to date quotes that we think are achievable. And then that insurance rate is only locked in for a year, so then you're subject to the renewal rate. So what we try to do is we try to 
just upfront be as conservative as possible and then beat that quote and come in actually with lower insurance, which we've actually been successful with and that has been proven true on several occasions. And then with the idea that, okay, maybe in year one, you actually beat your estimate, but then eventually if, if things are rising faster than you project, then eventually it'll catch up to your projection and then and it might even even still exceed. So there is, I would say it goes back to where do you want to be aggressive versus where you want to be conservative in your numbers. I would say day one, you don't definitely don't want to be aggressive on insurance. You need to make sure that you are budgeted for and you don't want to be wrong on day one. But if you are of the mind that insurance is going to continue rising dramatically year over year over year, then if you put that into your model, it's the model's going to tell you don't buy real estate. So it just kind of goes back to that question is, are you willing to take the risk? And do you believe that the cyclicality of the insurance market is eventually going to play out and things are going to settle down and maybe rates even fall? I'm not saying we're predicting that, but it, it's... It's some. It's just the things that you have to weigh and and figure out in your model. Are I guess can you shed some light into conversations you've had with your insurance uh, or insurance providers about Houston specifically? So when I look at this idea of climate change, I think things around the border of uh, coastal towns are always the easy targets or easy to pick on. Um, and so I'm I'm just interested in hearing like how the industry is thinking about towns like Houston, for example. Houston is a great example because it is very big. It has hurricanes and it, a part of it is coastal and a part of it is not coastal. There's plenty of flood zones all around Houston, both coastal flood zones and non-coastal flood zones. So for us, our pivot in the most recent six months or less even is basically we are not looking at any coastal deals at the moment. Coastal insurance is so challenging such that it, to us, it doesn't make sense to try to pencil it and make sense of the deals. However, with that being said, there might come a time and there might be a situation where basically everyone is so doomsday about coastal insurance, where the prevailing underwriting is, let's just throw out a crazy number, like 3000 per unit. I don't think it's there, but let's say it gets there. And because nobody knows where insurance is going to land. So then people are just throwing out the worst case scenario in their numbers. And if you can actually buy that deal with the doomsday number embedded in your model, that could actually make a lot of sense because you actually have a decent amount of upside in buying in that coastal, uh, that coastal market. So it just boils down to price, right? So for now, we think that prices are not adequately reflecting the risk associated with being in a coastal market, but it might change. For us, there's also an element of just wanting simplicity and wanting to be able to sleep at night. So buying in non-flood zones in non-coastal areas really makes sense for us as a way to mitigate the insurance risk. Yeah. And I think just to kind of pull out some of what I'm hearing in that conversation is um, there's always going to be risk associated with something. It's about mattering of picking, I guess, let me try it again. There's always going to be risk associated to something. There's always a price to which taking on that risk makes sense. And right now it might be a no, but tomorrow it might be a yes because facts always change and, and you're being dynamic in your thinking. That's exactly right. I actually do. And I do think that is coming 
right now, I would say it makes more sense still, as it has been the case for the last few years, to take less risk than more. And so that can mean buying newer property that's better located, that's better managed. But I do think eventually it's going to flip. And when things start becoming challenged operationally, because right now there's very few people that have op operational challenges in their portfolio for multifamily. Multifamily is very strong. But let's wait a bit. Let's wait until fundamentals might deteriorate. And then actually the deals that are perhaps dealing with insurance problems, dealing with lower quality tenants and delinquency and things like that, those are the deals that are going to come under the most stress, especially if they're on a bridge loan with, that's maturing and they have financial problems on top of their operational problems. And those are, are going to be the deals that sell for the biggest discount to where it's time to go dumpster diving. And you buy mm -hmm. those rough deals. And if you can turn them around successfully, you can be paid very handsomely for the risk that you're taking. Yep. Love it. Uh, the, so we've talked about income, we've talked about expenses, the last piece of it all is really the debt. And so the question I kind of wrote down when I knew we were going to record today is, um, since this is on the internet, and it will never be up in case you're wrong, um, maybe talk to us a little bit about how you're seeing the debt environment, and specifically, how you think about this $7 trillion of uh, uh, CBS loans that are coming up for renewal here in the next 18 months. Well, I'll, I'll focus on multifamily because that's our realm. Multifamily is in a much better is in much better shape than some of the other asset classes. Specifically, if you want to use office as kind of the the worst example, there's a lot of struggle in office because office is experiencing operational challenges as well as financial challenges with the with with debt being uh, less available at, at a much higher rate, et cetera, et cetera. With that being said, even with multifamily strong fundamentals, there's still a lot of issues that I think are going to come as these bridge loans mature over the next couple years, which is crazy to say uh, because it's just an unfortunate situation where you can have really strong, well-performing assets, but at the end of the day, if there's too much debt on those deals and the floating rate debt went from 3% to 9%, there's not much you can do to save that situation. So what's going to happen? I think there's going to be some forced selling in our environment. You know, right now there's not really many people who are truly forced to sell. They might want to sell right now. They might want to get out early, maybe if they're smart, but there's going to be a time where people are going to get to the end of their rope and they're just going to be upside down in their capital structure. And they're going to need to be able to pull off a capital call or some sort of rescue financing in order to save the deal, or they're going to have to sell the deal for a loss. And that's going to create buying opportunities. However, for those people that are sitting on the sidelines thinking that it's going to be amazing buying opportunities, the problem with that is there's a lot of liquidity out there. So at the same time as there's going to be a lot of deals that are going to flood the market, there's going to be a lot of capital ready to pounce on those deals. So... It's, it's really tough to say, but what one thing, so it, as far as the opportunity, it's harder to say, but one thing that's much more certain is there's going to be pain uh, that people are going to have to deal with in their portfolios. And so uh, it's, uh, for, you know, for us, it's definitely been a 
good learning lesson to kind of see it right up close and understand that if you over lever or if you make a wrong bet on floating rate debt, that can really show up in problems down the road. So fortunately for us, we have very limited exposure in that regard in our portfolio. We only have one bridge loan in our portfolio and only three floating rate loans. So we're able to manage that risk as a, as a sponsor. But you could imagine how little sleep a sponsor could be getting right now if most of their portfolio is floating and maturing in the next couple of years. That is a, a, a problem that is going to be very hard to solve. So it comes back to relationships where you're able to find a capital solution to be able to get get over that hump, right? A lot of people are saying survive to 25. And I don't know if that's exactly the right date, but I do think if you're able to hold on, you know, the, the, the longer you're able to hold on, the better. Yeah. You uh, mentioned liquidity in the system. Um, I have a general belief that there's enough liquidity in the system to help us weather this storm, uh, whether it's tucked in sovereign wealth funds or on the sidelines in PE firms that you'd never even heard of. Um, why do you say that though? What, are you reading something or uh, why do you think that? About liquidity? Yes. Aside from what I'm reading, which I'm sure is, you know, it's nothing unique. Everyone else is reading the same, Facebook. same yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would say it's more so the personal, the conversations that I'm having with private equity firms and people who would deploy capital. It, it, it is very different right now than the 2008 situation because back then nobody had any money. There was no money anywhere. Uh, today lenders are still willing to make loans. There's equity that's still interested in investing. It's just that we have had a paradigm shifting change in interest rates. I mean, it's that dramatic. It's, it's been that big of a shift in interest rates. And so that fundamentally changes valuations and, even though there's a ton of liquidity in the world, if that liquidity is demanding a certain return level, then that's going to have to cause prices to come down and people are going to have to reconcile. And of course, if you bought the deal all cash, you're not going to have any problems. But the problem is, and we've already seen some of these examples come come through the system, is if you if you bought at a high valuation because you were predicting rents to go even higher and things to be even more rosy, but instead those rents did the opposite and you had no real cushion in your in your numbers or in your capital stack because you put too much debt on those people are, are have already gotten and will continue to get wiped out yeah i uh, i'm smiling because you know like i'll pick on boise because that seems to be what i do you know boise rents increase 20% year over year and people are still underwriting like it's going to go up 10% next year and they're like hey if it if it only goes up half as much as it did in 2021 i'm like dude what are you talking about that is insane it's not just going to go up 20% year over year every year right that's that's the craziness of it and unfortunately in those types of market environments the it is it's a hard thing to do but maybe the best thing to have done at that time was to sit out and so yeah. if if you Obviously, nobody wants to be sitting out of, of, of the fun game, but if you stick to your, not conservative underwriting, but your fundamentally sound kind of, I like to say defensible underwriting where you can use historical data and one year of 20% rent growth to then extrapolate, that is not defensible. Yeah. 
Yeah, it kind of goes back to the marshmallow test, right? You see everybody making money in real estate. You want to be involved. You jump in just to make it happen where you've kind of take a delayed gratification pro- uh, approach. You're around in 10 years and they're not. Um, Rob, I want to be cognizant of your time. This is a fantastic conversation, um, but I'm going to switch us now to our last round. We're calling this the four toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book, be on your own, that you have read recently or that has given you a paradigm shift? That I've read recently, oh, I've been I've been reading a lot of different stuff, but I think one that comes to mind is well, actually, what I'm rereading right now is Influence. So mm-hmm. I think that's that's a great one. I'm sure you've heard Dan Hanford mention that book as well. He holds that book near and dear. So that's as I get more experience and and older, I just realize that everything's about people and everything's about being able to inspire. In one inspire, lead, sell in one form or another, right? No matter what you're doing, whether it's building a team or raising capital from investors, you have to be able to inspire, lead, and sell. And influence is exactly that. Yep, completely agreed. Our second one is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Hmm, best piece of advice... Hmm. One, one thing my dad always used to say is you don't have to do everything you find out about something like that, but you should find out about everything that you can do. Right? That's not the, the most elegant quote, but basically my dad would always say thinking is free, right? So you might as well think through everything, think through all the possible permutation of outcomes and everything, and you don't have to do every possible outcome but you can think through all of them and then pick the best one. Yeah, I needed to hear that piece of advice of like, you don't need to do everything you find out about, but you need to find out everything you can do um, because that is something I struggle with is like, oh, you can go do this and you can go do this. I just see the world is so abundant that I want to stick my nose into everything, but uh, it's probably not good for my success long-term or my mental health. Uh, Our third one is, what is the thing that you're most proud of in your life? I would say at this moment in time, I'm most proud of, well, a couple things. I, I, I would say we're still, I'm sitting in the office right now, so it feels very appropriate to say the team that we're building, I'm extremely proud of. It's, it's really cool to see something become bigger than myself, but that's a little bit too early to say because it, it's still, we're still a small company and it's still growing. And if, if I were to disappear tomorrow, you know, it probably could survive to some extent without me, but it's not not perfect, right? And so that's the true marker of a great business owner, a great CEO, is if you can just disappear for a month and you come back and things are just better than they were, that's incredible. So I think that's, I'm going to be extremely proud when we really get to that level where I can look at our team and our teams just come together and they're just, you know, working amazingly. Uh, but the other thing that kind of I'm already seeing the the fruits of as far as being proud is, is my family and how specifically my getting into multifamily has changed the course of my family's uh, life and trajectory because convincing my parents to get into multifamily eventually gave them the confidence and capital to actually shut down their single family business, which was totally a rat race and a, and a, and a big workload. They still work now, and but now they just so manage their multifamily investments, and that's a complete paradigm shift for them because they were they were always geographically tied 
to the Bay Area in California. And now that they're not, they're doing a ton of traveling and making up for lost time. And I'm extremely uh, proud to have been able to contribute to that and look to continue to be able to help the family any way I can. That's awesome. Um, our last one, our fourth and last one is, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? So I was thinking about this, and it's so hard to choose, obviously. There's so many options. But because we're talking about ice cream, which my ice cream still hasn't quite melted I know, it's enough. still frozen. That's, that's pretty good. It, it came out of a very uh, cold freezer, evidently. But I, I figured that Charlie Munger would be a good option because yeah. – I'm sure you know that him and Warren Buffett have sweet tooths and they're always drinking Cokes and eating Hershey's and stuff like that or C's candies because that they own that. Uh, so I think ice cream would be appropriate for, for Charlie Munger and I to enjoy. And talking to him is, is really great, w- would be really great. He has plenty of interviews online, but something that I find interesting about him is like a lot of times when I see people interviewing Charlie, they interrupt him because he speaks so slowly and then he'll have an idea and then if you just give him another minute, he'll come up with another exciting kind of insight. So I just feel like, man, if I was the interviewer, I would just shut up and just let him talk, let him talk, let him talk. So I would just talk to him and let all that flow out. For as well known as Charlie Munger is, I'm gonna go on the record and say he is still undervalued and underappreciated like under i don't he's still an underdog like people don't really know him as well as they should totally that's right well rob fantastic conversation if our listeners wanted to reach out to you learn more about you learn more about lone star get a copy of your book all the good things where's the best place we can point them yes you could do all that and more on our website our website is lscre Dot com. That just stands for Lone Star Capital Real Estate, so lscre.com. On our website, you can get the free underwriting download, underwriting model download, so the spreadsheet we use to analyze deals every day. You can go ahead and download that and use that for your own purposes, however you like. And then also the two books that I've published in the last three years, are, uh, are that, you know we have, we have links to buy that as well. And then I'm not sure when this episode is going to air, but for those that are Highly motivated individuals. We're hosting our third annual Lone Star Summit here in New York, actually hosting it here in our offices in the One World Trade Center. And so that's coming up October 16. So you can find tickets at lscsummit.com. Perfect. We will leave all those in the show notes. And then, Rob, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. 